afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of doves dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help me, Lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help, how I help you? From the threshing floor? From the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we will eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there are four men who are lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. <coughs> so they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. 
Therefore they've gone out of the camp to the, hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fall like that whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two sayas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a say of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Well, some of you may remember when in 1988, presidential candidate George Bush promised, and I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will. And the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say to them, read my lips. No new taxes. And as most adults know, two years into his presidency, President Bush signed into law new taxes. It's not just President Bush. President Clinton then came into office promising universal Health care, overhaul the health care system, and how many laws did they pass? Zero. But it wasn't just President Clinton. President Bush, after him, came into office. We will reduce the size of the government. We will privatize Social Security. And which of those happened? Neither. And then we had hope and change with President Obama. We are going to end the polarization of Washington. And yet, statistics showed it was higher when he left office. President Trump, Trump then promised a border wall. Which, though parts of it began by the vast majority of it, was not done at all. And now President Biden is in office who says, we are going to pass a so-called voting rights bill. We're going to build back better. And what has passed? Neither of those things. You know, presidents can make these promises. The most powerful person in our country, and what can they affect? Not very much. Their words do not always come to pass. And we know it's not just presidents. Since 2020, our family's been trying to go to Washington, D.C., but this thing called COVID has been keeping us from going. We make our plans, but God directs our steps. We tell people we're going to come, and something happens that causes us to be unable to keep our word. In sharp contrast, First and Second Kings has shown us over and over again that God always causes His words to come to pass. You can look up 15 different times in First and Second Kings where the prophets say something and it then comes true. Just a few examples. You may remember First Kings 13 where Jeroboam was 
going to take over the northern kingdoms. And God promised him, if you're faithful, you shall have descendants forever. And yet Jeroboam disobeyed. And then the Lord promised, since you've disobeyed, all of your descendants will be removed. Then 1 Kings 15, 29 read, Basha left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until, until he destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, Ahijah, the Shilonite. But it wasn't just in the big things. God also kept his word even to little people, like the widow that we read of in 1 Kings chapter 17, because there it reads, The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This morning we come to another story where we have two sets of words. The words of the king and the words of the Lord. Whose will we trust? Whose will come to pass? Well, if you have a bulletin, you'll see that this passage can be split up in four things. Because we first see at the end of chapter 6 that there are cursed words. Then in verse 32 through the beginning of chapter 7, there are competing words. Yet we then heard of celebratory words in verse 3 through 10 of chapter 7. And then lastly, the story ends in chapter 7 with confirmed words. But we begin with these cursed words. And to understand this story, you have to remember what we looked at last week, where the king of Syria was upset because Israel always knew their plans. So he sent his army to go and capture Elisha, but Elisha caused by praying to the Lord, them to be blind. And he led the Syrian army into Samaria, the capital of Israel. And when he gave them sight by prayer, what did he tell the king of Israel to do? Give them a feast. The king of Israel was wanting to slaughter them, but no, Elisha says, give them a feast and send them home. Well, that happened. And then that king of Syria did not do any more attacks on Israel. But now a new king we read of, Ben-Hadad, he comes and he renews the tax on Israel. But not an open field battle, but rather a siege. A siege where a city can receive no new food, no new water, supplies, messages, or people. You know, a siege is boa constrictor-like. It slowly chokes off hope, leading to suffocation through despair. As resources slowly dwindle, panic ensues, and desperation can lead to unthinkable acts. In 1941, Nazi troops surrounded Leningrad, and for the next 900 days, almost two and a half years, stayed there. The citizens eked out in existence. When the Nazi troops finally left, those who stayed behind told of only being able to walk a hundred steps before they had to sit and recover because they were so exhausted by the end of that siege over a million citizens and 300 soldiers 300,000 soldiers had died and those who made it did so by eating pets and other worse atrocities and we read of such atrocities here because here things are so bad that a donkey's head cost 80 shekels of silver now let's be honest different cultures eat different things than us you know, we read of people eating dog or horse, and we go, how can they eat that? 
And yet, in the back of our mind, we can't understand, okay, it's an animal, maybe we would think that's gross, but we wouldn't eat that. And yet, even around here, you don't find donkey heads being sold. You may find a hog's head, you may hear of dogs being eaten in other countries, but it's pretty rare to hear of people turning to donkey's head. Things had become so gross, so horrible, that they've turned to this. Now, Israel... They have abandoned the Lord, but if you read through, they haven't completely. They've tried to mix worship of the Lord with worship of these other gods. And so, though they weren't perfectly faithful, I'm sure it bothered them that a donkey was on the non-kosher list. Not only eating something that you normally wouldn't eat, this is something that they were forbidden from eating. Yet desperate times call for desperate measures, and since they've already waffled on some commands, it made it a lot easier to waffle on the next one. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, we then read that a fourth of a dove's dung was sold for five shekels. It was probably a mixture of use for fuel and eating. But all of that helps us understand, though not in any way approve, of what happens next. Because as the king's walking, checking out the city, a woman cries out for deliverance. And yet the king sarcastically replies, what can I bring you? Can I bring you anything from the threshing floor? Anything from the wine press? You know, the threshing floor is where the wheat was harvested. He's basically saying, you know nothing's there. What can I bring you? It's been sitting empty for months. Well, the wine press, we haven't crushed a grape in years. I have no resources to give you. And then he throws the Lord under the bus. He says, if he's not going to save you, I can't do anything. And yet the woman is only secondarily calling out for food. Her primary concern is justice. We see this because she then tells this horrific story of a woman coming to her and in their desperate starvation agreeing, let's boil each other's children so that we can live. Well, the woman did this atrocity, and now she's angry. It's so unjust. The other woman isn't willing to give up her child. She's not upset and horrified at her cannibalism of even her own child. She's rather just upset that the other woman won't play her part. And so the king tears his garment. And yet it's interesting, as he continues walking along the wall, people see that underneath his clothes, he's wearing sackcloth. People don't do this as much as they used to, but in the past in our country, if someone was mourning, they would wear black. It was the clothes of mourning. Well, in their culture, you would wear sackcloth. Those were the clothes of mourning. And it was more than just mourning for losing someone. Normally, sackcloth had this idea of repentance. You're mourning over your sin. And so it seems as though the king is mourning over sin, that he's humbling himself. And yet, we really see mixed messages from him, because he then swears an oath that he will see Elisha's head removed by tomorrow. Now, this is the living example of Proverbs 19.3. When a man brings folly, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. You know, the king had brought this own trouble against himself, but he doesn't rage against himself. 
he rages against God's representative, Elisha. So, on the one hand, the king is going around wearing sackcloth, showing an essence, an, a part that he realizes that the problem is their sin, and that the solution is to turn to God and from their sin. And yet, on the other hand, when this happens, he curses God. He's basically saying, we don't deserve this. Thus, you, Elisha, deserve to be punished for this. He hasn't, he hasn't fully owned his guilt. If he had, he would re, be, re, uh, be sorrowful over his own sin that had led to this. It reminds me of a story of a professor at a Christian seminary. And he was sitting in his office and one day he got a call. And he answered the phone. And the man said, hey, I want to let you know who I am. I was a student of yours a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember you. And I, I got to tell you, professor, I'm sorry, but I cheated on the exams so that I could pass. Professor sat there. I said, okay, I really appreciate you calling me. And I, I forgive you. So what we need to do is we need to temporarily revoke your degree. And we'll have you take the class over and earn the credit appropriately. And then we'll give you your degree back. The man on the phone was outraged. What? Well, well you, you can't do that. You know, he wanted the forgiveness. Oh, I forgive you. He didn't actually want what he was owed. You didn't pass the class, so you shouldn't get the credit. No, no, I don't want that. <laughs> I just kind of want to say I'm sorry. I don't actually want you to do anything because I'm wrong. And that's what the king's saying here. Well, you know, I'll put some clothes underneath my clothes so no one really knows but yeah i've said sure i can say that will this work can i just put on some clothes and god will forgive us no you need to actually repent you need to own your sin not just say oh yeah i can say a few things i can do a couple acts that way god will forgive me and the king should have known it was their own sin that had led to this i'm sure part of his anger was Elisha has been telling them this, and I'm sure Elisha read to them from Deuteronomy 28. There Moses warned the nation, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. And then in Deuteronomy 28:52 it says, they shall, shall besiege you in all your towns. Until your high and fortified walls, in which you trusted, come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudgingly Give food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. God had warned them, these are the very things that will happen to you if you abandon me. It was clear the king should have known. I'm sure Elisha 
had told him. And the king gave lip service to confession. He put on the garments of repentance. But he has not really owned his guilt. Have we owned ours? You know, our problem before God is not just that we've done a couple bad things here and there. It's that we have rebelled against him. And our acts of rebellion are only symptomatic of the deeper rebellion in our heart. Thus we come to God not with, well, if only I hadn't. Well, but if they hadn't first. But with only, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is how we cry out to the Lord. You know, God is holy and he will justly punish sin. And we see that in this story. Here, Israel is receiving the punishment for their sin. And either we will receive it, or we can turn to the one who received it for us, Jesus of Nazareth. Either way, God's word will always come to pass. His words of forgiveness, or his words of condemnation. Someone will be punished. Are you trusting in Christ, or in your own efforts? Christ promises forgiveness. But if you will not receive his, then we will receive God's punishment. Yet part of the problem is we don't trust God's word. And that's why what we read of next in chapter 6, verse 32 through the beginning of chapter 7, we read competing words. The scene now shifts. We are there on the city walls with the king. And now we're quickly in Elisha's bedroom or Elisha's house where he is talking with the other elders and he warns them look the king's messenger is coming he wants to cut off my head and seemingly the king wasted no time he sent an assassin right away well along with elisha having probably told the king that this is happening because of your sin i'm sure the king was also a little bit upset that you know not that long ago that very army was sitting in our city and didn't i tell all the men of the army this is a dumb thing to do. Give them food to eat? I mean, doesn't Elisha know these are our enemies? This is battle. we got to kill these people. And now, where is that army? Outside our city. It's the way some people think today. Yes, you know what the Bible says. That's good for in here. But you know, in a little bit, we're going to go out those doors. And in workplaces, sometimes, you know, that's the real world. Or... You know, in politics or, or in relational things. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we got to get real. And yet God's word is real and true for every sphere. Not just in a sanctuary where we worship the Lord, but in the classroom, in the bedroom, in the schoolroom, wherever it may be, we can trust God's word. It will always accomplish what he wants I think part of our problem is we have redefined success. We think success is only if we can get the results that we think should happen. And yet success is faithfulness to God. As with this story, we need to leave the results to Him. And yet, you may have noticed even here, Elisha, even though he knows that God's word will always come to pass, that doesn't make him passive. He doesn't say, well, 
If God wants me to live, I'll live. No, he sends people to guard the door. He knows God's sovereignty is not uh, an excuse for him to not take responsibility. And then we have this interchange. It seems as though the messenger arrives, and then at some point later, the king comes. But it begins with the messenger speaking for the king in verse 33 and saying, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king is showing what we suspected, that he's not really owning his guilt. Thus, he doesn't say, This trouble is from my hand. How else can we fast and pray and ask for forgiveness? He basically says, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He's blaming God. Yes, God does declare himself to be merciful, gracious, willing to forgive sin. Yet it doesn't appear that the king has truly repented. In fact, he seems to think that God should act on his timetable. Yet in contrast to the king's impatience, over and over we read in scripture of the importance on waiting on God to act. Earlier, Keith read for us Lamentations chapter 3, and I'll read just a couple of those verses again. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul that seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And yet, we don't like waiting. We want results now. We demand answers today. We rage for justice yesterday. And God calls us to wait. Again, this does not mean passivity. Elisha barred the door. But there are some things that are outside of our control. And those, Psalm twenty-seven fourteen says to wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The problem is, in our wisdom, we know something should have happened by now. We've done enough. God now owes us. In our sinful impatience, we can grasp for what we should wait for God to give us. Perhaps you feel like you've waited long enough for justice. So now you're just going to go make it right. You've sat by patiently while your friends fill in the blank. Now they have a girlfriend. Now they have a spouse. Now they have children. Now they are going on those vacations you've always dreamed of. But it hasn't come for you. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. Some of them are quite good. And not saying you should even pray for those. But the problem is when we're like the king of Israel and we take the next step. It's when we are not only growing weary of waiting, but we declare, I'm done waiting. Yes, Psalm 69.3, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. It is hard to wait. It is a test of faith to wait on the Lord. And yet, as we wait upon the Lord, we grow in reflecting Him. We grow in showing His character. We show the world around us that God can be trusted. You know, waiting on Him will bring joy and happiness. 
His timing is better than ours. And as Isaiah 40, 31 says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Some of you may have sung a song growing up, In His Time. In His Time, He makes all things beautiful in His time. Lord, please show me every day, as you're teaching me your way, that you do just what you say in your time. In God's time. And so in response to the king's impatience, Elisha could have said, I'm not going to do anything. And yet God in his mercy then says, you won't need to wait any longer. By tomorrow at this time, wheat, it's going to be like nothing. Barley, you can get two heaps of it. It's going to be as though nothing is costs anything at all. It will be returned to normal. And yet the captain, who's there, he scoffs. <laughs> if God like made a window and just started dumping wheat from the heavens... Could we have it for that cost? It's inconceivable. And here we have competing words. We have the king who declares that by tomorrow, Elisha's head will be removed. And that seems somewhat likely. However, God declares through Elisha that by tomorrow, food will be plentiful. And that seems utterly impossible. And yet the problem is, is we go... Which of these seems plausible to my mind? And that's the one that we say we will believe is true. We don't have to understand how God will act to know that God will act. And so we see next that God is going to act in an incredible way, a way that leads to celebratory words. We see that in chapter 7, 3 through 10. Now, if this were a play, we'd have many stage settings the curtains would go down and you'd hear the crew running around rapidly because now we're no longer on the city walls. We're no longer in Elisha's house. Now we're outside the city gates and we're introduced to four lepers. And they basically have a very rational conversation. They go, I'm pretty hungry. How about you? I'm starving. When's the last time you ate? A few days ago. When's the last? Well, what are we going to do? Well, they don't normally let us in the city, but we could try. There's nothing in there. Why would we go in the city? Well, we, what's the point of sitting here? If we just sit here, we're going to die. You know what? We're going to die. So we might as well die quick. Let's go to the Syrians. Maybe they'll just chop off our heads, or maybe they'll at least throw us some food. There's no point sitting here. Let's go. And so they all go. And as they go, they get there, and there's not a single soul to be found. The whole camp is empty. And then the author changes scenes again. We're given the backstory because the Syrian army is there and then they hear something. Now I think, though I can't prove this, I think it's a divine comedy. Who, who is it that drives these people away? Well, the lepers come out at twilight and the Syrians leave at twilight. Four lepers sound like to the Syrian army all of the armies of the Egyptians and the Hittites together. And if they just looked, they'd go, oh, it's four lepers. Just kill them or throw them some food. Get them out of here. And yet they, in their panic, flee and leave the whole camp. 
deserted. So what do they do? The lepers go in a tent and food, oh, drink, and they feast. They eat and drink gold, silver. They take it back. They hide it. They go and do it again. This is incredible. I mean, just imagine you've been starving, and here is Dillard's and Market Street all to yourself. Not a soul. You can take anything you want. And yet after trip two, they go, this isn't right. You know, it's going to be sunlight and eventually they're going to recognize what happened and we're going to be punished. Now, are they recognizing that God will punish them or others? We don't know, but they recognize they shouldn't be punished. But instead, this is days of good news. We should tell others. And so they go and they tell the guards at the city gates what has happened. That they can now have as much food and clothing as they want. Now God has created us all to be evangelists. I don't mean evangelists merely in the spiritual sense. Rather, God made us as humans that when we have something good, we love to tell other people. Your neighbor asks, have you tried the new barbecue place? Oh, the ribs are incredible. You know, no one's forcing them to tell you. They're just ribs evangelists. When they find good ribs, they're going to tell you. Or your friend sends you a song. Oh, have you heard the new beat on the song? It's incredible. They're music evangelists. Tomorrow at workplaces, people are going to go, did you see that play yesterday? Oh, when he did this. Why? Because we're sports evangelists. We see something good and we, we don't want to just keep it to ourselves. We love to tell others. That's how God created us. So the question we all have to ask is, what are we evangelists for? What have you enjoyed that is so good in your life that you just, you just want to tell others? This is so good. Now, yes, I do realize there is a difference because probably you've never told someone, oh, have you tried these wings? And their face goes from smiling to burning anger. And some of you have had that. You've tried to tell, you just bring up God and all of a sudden, and you're like, whoa, like, I just kind of mentioned God and you're like wanting to punch me. Like, we can talk about something else. It's just, you know, everyone kind of thinks about this every once in a while, you know? And so, yes, there is a difference. Yes, I'm not saying that it's not hard to be an evangelist and that we need to be wise. We do need to be wise. I'm just pointing out, let's recognize the incredible good news that we've been given in Jesus Christ. We have not just good news, we have the best news in the world. We deserve God's eternal punishment. And yet He was so gracious and merciful, He sent His Son to die for us. We live in this broken world where there's tragedies, where there's broken relationships. And one day by faith, you can live for eternity with God in a perfect world. Because His Son came to restore this world. We were His rebels, and we can now be His sons and daughters. What good news. Let's be gospel evangelists. And yet we know we can trust this good news. It's not just some fable or some nice myth that we've made up because we would want to comfort ourselves. Because God's word is always confirmed. And that's the last thing we see. Verses 11 through 20. Confirmed 
words. Now you got to remember the context. The lepers went out at twilight. They've eaten. They've gone and hid everything. They've gone a second time. So by now, it's probably pretty late in the night. So when they come to the gate and knock on the gate doors, the gate guard's probably looking out, and the king's probably deep into sleep. So they tell the gate guard, they go and tell the king, and he's aroused from his sleep. And he just goes, Psh, have you all never read the Trojan horse? Come on, guys. That's, they're still there. They just they went out somewhere, and as soon as we go out, psh, they're going to come and take the city. This is a big ruse. Now, under normal circumstances, one could understand his caution. Yet Elisha had just foretold that God would do a mighty work by tomorrow at this time. You know, the king's skepticism here seems more like sinful unbelief rather than healthy military strategy. And yet one of the king's servants, probably a very hungry one, goes, hey, well, someone could go check it out. Go see if there's food. I mean, I'm going to die here anyways. How about we just send a little reconnaissance party and go find out? And so the king agrees and they go. They find that clothes are littered all the way to the Jordan River. So far away that it would make no sense for them to be hiding somewhere. And so they come back and upon telling the king what happens, the people rush out of the city. And as God said, find flour, you can buy it for a shekel. Two measures of barley, just a shekel. God's word is confirmed. Not just in blessing, but God's word is also confirmed in punishment. Because what happens to the incredulous captain? Well, he's put in charge of the gate. And in the people's mad, riotous dash for food, he's trampled. He heard of what would happen, but he did not taste it. You know, the king had said something's going to happen tomorrow. Elisha's head will be gone. Elisha's head was still there. God said something would happen tomorrow. Plentiful food. God's word came true. It was confirmed. Even down to confirming the punishment for unbelief. God's word is always confirmed. God's word always comes to pass. And yet though God's word is always confirmed, there are still mockers today. In 2 Peter 3, we read of people mocking the return of Christ. It says, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Look, nothing's changing. Christ isn't coming back. Yet we are to wait patiently for the Lord. God's words of blessing, God's words of punishment will come true. They don't always happen in our timing, but over and over we see in God's perfect timing that he acts. So let's pray and trust. Because, you know, it's not just scoffers. You may remember the story in Acts 12 where they go and they pray for Peter to be released from prison. And God releases Peter. And Peter comes and he knocks on the door and he says, I'm here. And what do the prayers tell the servant girl who goes, Peter's at the gate? They go, Shh, you've gone crazy. Which <laughs> Peter is in prison. The very thing they're praying to God for, they don't actually think God could do. 
And I love those stories because I go, that's a lot like me. God will work in his time. So pray and trust. May we give him glory. As Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do more abundantly all than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in your time, in your time, you do make all things beautiful. So Lord, would you give us trust in you to wait patiently? Oh Lord, it is so hard at times. And we're thankful for your word, such as Psalm 69, that tells us of saints who are groaning as we wait and our eyes are tired with tears and our throat is parched from crying out. And yet, Lord, may we keep holding on, keep trusting your word, knowing that those who wait upon you will renew their strength. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.